Welcome to the Style Free Podcast, where a father and son detail and digress on a wide variety of topics within music, art, family, and culture. Your hosts are Professor Stephen J. Tyson Sr. and Jr., also known as Dad and Papa. In today's episode, we welcome our first guest, Gary Brown, singer, songwriter, producer extraordinaire. I would like to say we're absolutely delighted and honored to have Mr. Gary Brown as our first guest on the Style Free Podcast. Absolutely. And Gary, for over the past 40 years, has been a singer, songwriter, producer, and composer. And he's worked with literally a who's who in the music business. Iconic artists such as Shaka Khan, Gladys Knight, Justin Timberlake, George Benson, Roberta Flack, and Barry White, just to name a few with numerous Grammy-nominated projects under his belt. I could go on and on and talk about this man's accomplishments, but we are just so delighted again and honored for you to be with us on the Style Free Podcast, Mr. Gary Brown. Oh, man, that was a very nice intro. I hope I can live up to that intro. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I have to tell you, just in full disclosure, Gary and I have known each other since, I guess, forever. My inception. <laughs> yeah, not almost. <laughs> and uh, and and we've just known each other through the years. And of course, as an entertainer, we've had the honor to see him perform in New York City, among other places. And we were quite and deeply touched and honored that he sang at uh, my father and Steve's grandfather's memorial celebration yeah. in Manhattan. So that 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 endeared you with us forever and ever. <laughs> oh, well, you know, your your dad was a special person for our family. My father adored your dad, man. Mm. My mm. father didn't like, he's a bit of a misanthrope. He didn't like a whole lot of people. <laughs> that's just the honest truth. But he, man, did he love him from time, man. He well, loved your dad. Well, thank you. Thank you. I, I really appreciate that, Gary. And, uh, you know, we, we are family. Absolutely. And, uh, we are family. And Gary is the youngest of the children of William, as you just mentioned, and Phyllis Brown. And I think the first time we actually met was when you were living in Mount Vernon. Probably, yes, yes. And you were living with the Thomases. That's right. My father and Maceo Thomas, well, my my father and mother and Maceo and and Margie lived in a a split-level house Mm -hmm. together. That's exactly Mm -hmm. I think they bought the house together. They were mm-hmm. on that little entrepreneurial thing. And they bought that house on 2nd Avenue, which was right off of Sanford Boulevard, around the corner from Memorial Park, Memorial mm-hmm. Field. When we moved, I was only three. My oldest brothers had gone. I think Stephen went to Mount St. Michael for a minute. Mm-hmm. My parents went to A.B. Davis. My mom's side you know, and dad's side, where everyone was from Mount Vernon. Oh, okay. We had okay. serious ties to Mount Vernon. The money earning was definitely in our, <laughs> our, our blood and veins. And of course, proud to be, you know, you know, as you know, Denzel's from Mount Vernon. Sure, um, sure. You know, a lot of, you know, you know, you got my man. Heavy the, D from there? Heavy D's from Mount Vernon. Ken Singleton from Mount Vernon. Gus and Ray Williams from Mount Vernon. Wow. So lots of great illuminaries come from Mount Vernon originally. And of course, yeah. uh, Ruby and uh, and Ozzy Davis, Ruby D and Ozzy well, Davis lived there. 
Well, and you know, my dad actually worked in the post office with Ozzie Davis at some <laughs> years, years ago. Wow. When Ozzie was just starting, I guess, off and on between, you know, how it is when you're an, an actor, an actress. Yeah. He, I guess, would work in the post office between gigs. And that was obviously a good gig for, especially an African-American back then. Mm, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, he worked in the post office with Ozzie for a little bit, a little bit of time. Wow. Tell him. Yeah. So then when you were three, you then moved to Hartsdale, is that right? Yes, we moved to Hartsdale to Greenberg. Actually, one of the main reasons we moved there was because there was something going on in a town we grew up in that was being called the Princeton Plan. And it was a test for integrating the school system there. Mm. And that was a big part of the reason my parents decided to move there because mm. uh, there was the, the Hartsdale school system and then the Greenberg, the white kind of uh, white plain. So there's like kind of the black area town, the white area time town, mm. and they integrated the school. And it was kind of, it was called the Princeton plan. And that was a, a very big part of why my parents had decided to move us up there. Oh, okay. Wow. I didn't know. I know that your your parents, and, and certainly I remember a story about your mother going to the March on Washington. You know, I don't know. I know that there's an incredible picture of my mom with Martin Luther King from a fundraiser. She might have been there. You know, she doesn't really discuss that. I don't know. If, I, I'm not sure. She's never told me if she was at, at the March on Washington or not. Mm-hmm. I know that both my parents were very, you know, involved in the civil rights. Yes. Uh, and uh, they were very active in that. My dad even is especially so uh, on, mm-hmm. and on a local level as well. And I didn't mm-hmm. even know about a lot of that till later in life. I didn't realize and my dad was as actively involved as he was. But, you know, my father was, you know, grew up with nothing, basically, with not mm-hmm. much. And so, and, you know, he did as did all of our parents, you know, in mm-hmm. the out. Sure. Many of them came from from limited resources and he was one of those people that equity was a, a huge thing with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he, he was very sensitive about that type of thing, his po- politics, you know. So that was a big part, as with, was with your parents. Oh, yeah. You know, oh, your yeah. grandparents, uh, Steve Jr. Yeah. Uh, they were all very, very actively a part of that time period mm-hmm. was that was it's the 60s and well, let's even go from the late 50s into the 60s. There was a lot of movement going on in that direction. There was a lot of turmoil going on. You know, we forget that they were raising children That's during right. all that, you know, and me being as young, you know, as young as I was during that period, I wasn't really aware mm. of what was going on. But when you think about the fact that they were raising kids and dealing with all the political and civil strife, the mid to late 60s were a serious period, man. Yes, yes. And in fact, to that point, when you mentioned the ins and outs, I should take a moment to mention that the ins and outs was started in the early 50s by a group of women, many of whom went to college together. You know, and they created essentially a network where the families, you know, as the children were, were being raised, they would share information, talk to one another about what was going on in the world and how yes. they support each other and their families. And and even practical things. So, so um, you mentioned your parents and their intention with moving to a certain area just so that they could have better educational opportunities for the kids yes. in, in the schooling. And so it did being in a different school system or an integrated school system or in in my assumption, a school system that had more resources than what would have been provided to you, provide you with the opportunity to, to, to explore music and and explore some of your creative endeavors in certain ways? You know what? That's a really good question. And the reality is that might not have been the case had I just gone to a school system that was integrated, but there was something very 
And I know a lot of people probably say this, but there was something very unique about the school system in the area in which we grew up. So our area, I would say back then, it was basically African-American, Italian, Irish, and Jewish. Mm -hmm. Okay, those were the main. Mm -hmm. And our school system was very arts-centric, especially our high school. So there was a lot of creative talent that came. I mean, John Shear, the photographer, came from there. You know, you have to remember also in Greenberg, Cab Calloway lived in our area. Mm. Um, uh, Gordon Parks lived in our area. Ted Shear, the comic who did, you know, the first black comic in the New York Times, which was Quincy, lived mm-hmm. in our area. Moms Mabley lived in our area. So our wow. area was an Atlantic star came out of, out of our area. Um, a lot of creative people came out of our area and our high school was very liberal and Mm. and thus the liberal arts were very very important part of of our curriculum Mm -hmm. so yes to that question i got a chance to do all kinds of things and obviously a big part of it also is when your parents work hard to give you opportunities that they didn't have Mm -hmm. when you come from a middle class background rather than a lower middle class or impoverished background, you have a lot more opportunity to experiment and -hmm. explore than you would if, you know, the situation would more difficult or you had to get out of high school and help your family take care of the younger kids or, you know, all the things that go on. So I was very blessed in that way. Now, you know, none of my older brothers were creatives. So I was a bit of a uh, anomaly in my family. Mm. Probably like, where did this thing come from like why are we doing these weird things that none of the other kids do you know what i mean there must have been uh, i'm sorry to interrupt but i was just curious there must have been music in the house i mean but you know to be honest with you it's interesting you say that too because there wasn't that much music in the house Hmm. and i now i didn't find out till years later that my cousin who's a musician told me that my father was this huge jazz fan Wow. And my, but he must, I think he had some of his jazz records still, but I don't remember my dad really coming home and listening to music very often. Mm -hmm. Um, Now I had older brothers, so therefore they were listening to what they were listening to. But my oldest brother, Stephen, was more into like the rock thing. Mm -hmm. That was, that's what integration will do. (laughs) And and I was kind of more into Sly Stone. Sly Stone was my idol. Wow. What was it about Sly's music that caught your attention early on? Obviously, Sly Sly and Family Stone were were an incredible amalgamation of pop, rock, gospel, soul, everything, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you have to remember, I was young. That music was very approachable. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? It's like, you know, Hot Fun in the Summertime or or Stand or any of those songs. They were pop songs. Mm -hmm. They -hmm. were brilliantly written and arranged pop songs, but they were pop songs. And Mm -hmm. you have to remember, you were coming up they played everything on the radio. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't yeah. just, you know, not now where everything's kind of broken into like little micro uh, areas. When, when we were coming up, the radio stations played everything from Sly Stone. And then you might hear the Doors or you might hear the Beatles. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, my ear always went towards soul music for whatever reason that is. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget we were in seventh grade. I was already was in a band. I was in like a band in the fifth grade. We had this band called Inner City Funk. I'll never forget. There was nothing inner city about us, but we know we <laughs> But our music teacher was young, and she turned us on to Earth, Will, Fire. 
Okay. And we were digging <laughs> Earth, Wind, and Fire, man. And she's, she took us on a class trip. Mm. No, not all of us, about nine of us, to see Earth, Wind, and Fire open for Sly and the Family Stone. Oh, that's crazy. Wow. wow. It was. <laughs> I, first of all, I was so excited that Sly Stone was even the same building I was standing in. It was <laughs> unbelievable. See, back then was a very different time because you didn't see your idols and mus musical idols on videos and on TV and or, or like you didn't hear their voices yeah. other than singing, other than records. So to just hear them speak or just to see them, yes. you know, in any other capacity was a big, big deal. Yeah, yeah. This way before MTV and all of that. Right, exactly. Yeah. They didn't have music yeah. videos and all that kind of stuff. So just being in that room, just knowing I was, even though the room was Madison Square Garden, but mm -hmm. still, it was literally magical. Also, it could have been the fact that it was the first time I smelled weed. <laughs> you know. But what year was this? Yeah, this must have been 1971 or 72, maybe. Oh, wow. Maybe That's 70. right, because EWF was just coming out the box, you know, yes. pretty much. Maybe 72, 73. Yeah. And, you know, back then, we hadn't pulled the curtain on Oz yet. And mm. by that, I mean the music industry was still magical. We didn't know about the artists, what they made for a living or what, mm -hmm. where they lived or their personal issues. All we yes. knew was the music and the concerts and any little bit of them that you could see was so mm -hmm. inspiring and affected you so deeply. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's unfortunate for young people now is that the magic, you know, the curtain's been pulled. You know how things are created. You know how they're made. You know how records are sold. And you know what? We didn't mm -hmm. know it. So as a young artist, it was so inspirational. And I had known by that point that I wanted to be in entertainment in some capacity anyway. But that show changed everything. It was like, wow. I have to do that. And what's really interesting is around that time, Jungle Boogie came out. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, I was in the seventh grade. I'll never forget Jungle Boogie was like the biggest record. You know, for the brothers. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> and that was hard. That was like, for us, Jungle Boogie, Boogie was like hardcore hip hop would be now. Yeah, right. right. It was like, it was funky. It was raw. And, and, and that was, wasn't that Ronald Callis Bell? Absolutely. That was cool again. Yeah. Yeah. Who you, you would know, later be on I would later work with. And if <laughs> you would have told me, because, I, you know, we all love Jungle Boogie and Hollywood swinging and Summer Man. If you would have told me then, Oh, in about, let's see if I was, what, 12. In 14 years, you'll be singing on stage with those guys. <laughs> I would have thought you were out of your mind. That's incredible. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was. But I see, I always had idols. It was, you know, Sly and then Marvin Gaye. Mm. And then it became George Benson. And then it, around George Benson, it was Al Jarreau, too. I literally had a cat in college I named Al Benson. And, you know, and once again, you know, if you would have told me some years later I would write for Al Jarreau and for George Benson at some point, I would have thought you were crazy. Mm -hmm. you know. But the, I always had an idol at any particular time in my musical kind of journey. There was always someone that was like the pinnacle to me. Yes of, yes. of what I thought was, you know, was the high bar, was the greatness. Of course, mm -hmm. look. Stevie Wonder's in there, Michael Jackson's in there, you know, they're all in there. Yeah, yeah. You know? yeah. Another point you had mentioned that with all of these musical heroes, that at the same time, you also had this love for, I guess, the American songbook or the 
you know, some of those classics. Yes. I mean, talking about Ella or Frank Sinatra and Nash yes. and all of that. So how, how did that, was that concurrent with what was going on then at that time? I wasn't on to Nat King Cole and Frank Sinatra like I would be in later years. Mm-hmm. But the music of Ellington, Billy Strayhorn, you know, the great composers, because I did some cabaret. See, first of all, I was a music theater kid in high school, too. So that kind of brings you a little closer to that element. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when I got out of college, I was doing the smaller clubs like McKell's. The Cellar, which actually the Cellar, I did more R&B stuff, but some of the, another place, Green Street Cafe, a place called Cattail, some of those places kind of called for more of doing some of the classics. Mm-hmm. Some of the audiences were older. Uh, it was a little bit kind of more of kind of an upscale kind of environment. And once again, in my school, our music program and our theater program, Mrs. Fellow was my music theater teacher, who turned us on to such incredible music. Everything from Everything Must Change, you know, from the Body Heat album, she turned me on to. And, you know, and so... Quincy Jones, yeah. Yes, exactly. Uh, But, you know, so we got, but I got turned on to Ellington, as well as Dinah Washington and Ella and, Mm -hmm. you know, all the greats. Fairly early on, because I always felt that that music, to some degree, in some ways, was the most challenging. Mm. Um, in and, what way? Well, first of all, just dealing with the intervals that are written in jazz music, singing and developing an ear for not only singing the intervals that are written in, in great jazz songs, but also because I was trying to try to learn how to scat because of Al Jarreau, obviously. Mm-hmm. Then you've got to start paying a little bit more attention to theory and a little bit more attention, you know, to knowing your scales. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I always yeah. wanted to be more than just like a guy who was a one trick pony. You know, I okay. wanted to be able to do different types of music. And to me, if you can, I don't want to, if you can find, I don't want to, I could say master because I haven't mastered anything. But if you can find your way in the jazz idiom and working in that area, and even during the fusion jazz period, as you well know, in the in the late seventies, mid mid to late seventies, that if you can do that, you're going to develop an ear that mm-hmm. will come in very handy later in life. And it did because it helped me later as a producer and with arranging background vocals and just mm-hmm. hearing things that I don't think I would have heard had I just stayed in one idiom. I, you know, to be honest with you, the, the greatest compliment a musician ever gave me was they said, "You know, you're a singer, man, but." You're a musician. Mm-hmm. And coming from a jazz artist, that's a real compliment because mm-hmm. there are many singers who do everything by ear and they're great, don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. But when a musician hears that you can hear the harmony, the fifth or the flattened you know, note, and they know that you can hear that when picking up a part or even in arranging a part, that's a great compliment as mm-hmm. a singer. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. That, that's so true. That's something that I've also been learning over the past few years and immersing myself more deeply in as far as understanding theory, understanding certain aspects of just musicality that has helped to shape and create the audio foundation for yes everything that I'm doing right now and will continue to do. Well, you know, I feel that, you know, because, you know, you're a hip hop cat, you know what I mean? And I tell my son this because he's also a rapper. I've always said, look, I know you're in the hip hop and that's dope, but listen to everything. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Listen mm-hmm. to everything because there are very few people who've created music, music idioms. Like Miles Davis has created music idioms. Okay. Mm-hmm. Very few people have created music idioms. So most of the time when you hear something that's fresh and new, mm-hmm. it's a fresh take on a combination of other music idioms, right? Someone who comes and takes pieces of other things and creates a salad, let's say, that you've never tasted before. But it's Mm. still taking from a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of this. So I think that if you want to create fresh art, you've got to have a palette to draw Mm. from. You can't just listen to the stuff that you're doing personally if mm-hmm. i'm doing r&b and soul if all i do is eat drink and sleep r&b and soul then mm-hmm. i'm not going to be in a situation where i can start bringing interesting elements of let's say jazz or gospel or or even country let's say mm-hmm. into my music to create something that's fresh because all i'm doing is drinking this one type of drink all day long right right you know what i mean i think that even rappers and the best rap producers obviously have done that and when you think about some of yep. the stuff from Tribe Called Quest and then Cats. You know what I mean? It was mm-hmm. it was innovative because they were grabbing from other music idioms. Yes, yes. Yeah, that's absolutely yeah. right. Now, as a songwriter, you went to Syracuse University. You yes. were theater, you were theater major and also a English minor. Yeah, I minored in English because I didn't want a BFA. I wanted a BS. Um, okay. Bachelor, you know, only because I thought maybe it would come more in handy mm-hmm. later in, in life. And of course, the, the being the English minor, I think was a, I'm glad I did that because it's helped me in writing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't thinking that then, mm-hmm. but when I think back on it, it's come in handy. But, you know, it's interesting because I went to school to study acting and not even music theater, like straight acting. Mm, wow. Um, yeah. Wow. I wasn't in music theater. Uh, mm-hmm. I was in a band. I was in different bands throughout my college experience. Okay. But I wasn't a music theater major, which is interesting because I tell you, you never know what you're going to use. Also, in the music theater program when I was there, oh, God, I always forget his name. He's one of the greatest screenwriters that's a, uh, that's alive today who did Moneyball and A uh, Few Good Men. He's huge. Um, anyway, he was in the music theater department when I was there, and you would have never thought he... he I don't think he did anything in music theater. He ended up becoming a screenwriter. So, you know, you, you go and get these majors and then you're like, okay, well. Aaron Sorkin? Aaron Sorkin. Thank you very much. He was in my class. You know, Steve, you might know this. You know, when I was 14 or 15, I started doing like TV commercials and stuff like that mm. and was going to go into, into acting. But, you know, I'll be very honest with you. One of the problems that I ran into was my shade of color. Mm. I, and what they used to say then is we really liked them, but we need someone a little more urban not brown skin enough you know what i mean yeah and i lost a lot of gigs because of that you know and the other thing for acting for me was i was always someone that wanted to do i was do i want to do i want to do and and the thing about acting in theater is i didn't like the idea that i had to be cast before i could work Mm -hmm. i had to wait for someone to say okay we're going to choose you you can work now Mm -hmm. Uh, with music i could start working right away i could go do clubs i could be singing immediately yes. you know what yes. i mean like i wanted yes. to be i was never one who was patient when it came to waiting to do my craft you know that's one of the reasons i think i i kind of went more towards music than theater which i loved don't get yes. me wrong yeah. um but music was immediate 
But you say you you also brought some of that theater experience, you know, the idea of telling a story, you know, through motion and, and stagecraft and all of that kind of found its way to the clubs, didn't it? Oh, no, no doubt. Well, first of all, you know, I'm a ham, so that's going to be in there. Regardless. Uh, but no, it absolutely does. Look, let me tell you something. If you look at Frank Sinatra, who's also an actor, right? That's right. That's I remember right. Quincy Jones talking about Frank Sinatra once, and he was saying how this man, people didn't realize what he was doing, but this man knew exactly when to flick his cigarette or mm. touch his hat. It was all, all choreographed. All yeah. the things you see great stage performers like him do, you think that they're just doing them organically. And mm. to some degree, maybe they are. But Frank Sinatra was such a consummate artist mm-hmm. that he knew how to sit back and put his arm up and mm-hmm. when to turn his head. It was all part of a pantomime mm-hmm. of pulling the audience in. And that is something that I think, I mean, not comparing myself to Frank Sinatra by any means, what I'm saying is that theatrical background definitely comes in handy when you're trying to entertain an audience. Mm-hmm. You know, Because when you're doing, let's say, a small nightclub, okay, and it's just a piano and you, and that's, you know, I'll tell you, that's where you cut your teeth, brother. You know, you got a microphone, a piano, and you. And <laughs> right. You have a room full of people who live in New York. So they've yeah. seen it all. Right. Okay? <laughs> and you have to entertain them for 40 minutes. Mm-hmm. So you can't stand flat-footed. Now, if I was, you know, David Peaston or something, maybe I could do it. But to just stand and just, you can't. There's only but so much blowing away vocally you can do to people in 40 minutes mm-hmm. an hour. You've got to entertain them too. Unless you're singing like hit songs that are your hit songs, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. then you can get away with that. But when you're yeah. trying to entertain a crowd who doesn't know who you are and you have 40 minutes, to, you can't just try to riff them to death. You've got to entertain them. you got to talk to them. you got to lead into songs. And that's where the whole theatrical background really came in handy doing the nightclubs in New York. So anytime you have a, a, a lyric, whether you wrote it or whether another artist wrote it, you, I would imagine you inhabit those words or that, that, that there's a story there that you, like an actor, you know, you step into that space. Could you talk about that, uh, you know, just the stagecraft, the approach that way? Well, you know, it's, what's really interesting is, you're, first of all, you're 100% right. You know, a lyric, you want to sell a lyric right? You want to sell the story. So I think that part of it for me was almost innate Hmm. because I was been, had been an actor because Hmm. what's really interesting. And I hate to admit this right now, there are a lot of songs of other artists that I've sang through the years that Hmm. I didn't even really pay as much attention to till later and go, Oh, that's what that song was about Hmm. because melody was always what hit me first with a song. Oh, okay. And I know that sounds like you think he's an actor, he's going to be into the, into the, into the lyric. I mm-hmm. think that came because I just knew how to work lyrics because I was an actor. Mm-hmm. But melody is like, even when I write, some people write lyrics and then they create melodies around them. Melody is always the strong suit for me. Writing, my, I usually write melodies first before I write lyrics. When mm. I hear a song, it's the melody. Sometimes I'll hear a song and love it and listen to it 10, 15 times before I even really pay attention to the lyric. When the melody comes to you, does it come to you in a particular key? In other words, do you have you discovered over the years that you're attracted to a particular key? 
yes, in, a, in a song? And do you write in that key? Well, first of all, I do not only write in one key because I think that keys have colors. Mm. And sometimes I might write the song in the key, but then say, you know what? Let me try this a half step up or a whole step up. But mm. E flat minor is probably my favorite key because it's soulful and it's minor keys. Of course, most people like minor keys, right? Especially why is that? Why is that? Because they're more emotional sounding. Mm. You know? And E flat minor is a key I just love. Because first of all, I love playing it on the keyboards because mm. it's not a difficult key to play in. But also, this the sound of and my voice is good in that key. But I don't necessarily choose the key I'm going to write a song in because usually if I hear a melody in my head, whatever key that melody is in. Now, maybe a lot, it ends up being E flat minor, but that's not conscious. Mm -hmm. But I try to write in a lot of different keys only because I think that um, the same song does not sound the same in another key. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It does change the color of a song. And even if you're staying in a minor key, you know what I mean? It, it, mm-hmm. it changes the color of a song when you change the key. Sometimes the energy changes. So that's interesting. The energy changes. So when you're commissioned to write a song for a particular artist, when you're thinking of the melody, do you think of that in the key that you're familiar with? Or do you think of it in terms of the key that that particular artist is comfortable with? No, I never think about the artist's key. Mm. Look, let me tell you something about writing for other artists. Pretty much every time I tried to write a song for a particular artist, I failed. And Mm. by that, I mean, you always assume when you're writing, and this is my experience. I don't want to say this is everyone's experience. You always assume, okay, that's that artist's vibe. I'm going to write in that vibe. But that artist is thinking, I did that already. I don't want you giving me more of that. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. but you're thinking as a songwriter, let me give them their thing. Mm-hmm. Most of the songs that I've had cut by the Barry Whites, the George Bensons, Al Jero, most of the time I hadn't written the song for that artist. Like the mm-hmm. stuff that George Benson did, those are supposed to be for an album I was working on for myself. Okay. So okay. At the time, took him the Tommy LaPuma who you mm-hmm. know did um the you know the Breezen album and the unforgettable album with uh, you know Tommy was it was a was an icon and he was going to try to get me a record deal with Tommy mm-hmm. and Tommy was like look I can't sign anybody right now but man I'd like to play these for George <laughs> and so I didn't know this was going on and yeah. so my manager says comes to me and says look they, they're not signing right now but he really wants them for another artist. I'm like, man, no, I'm not giving up my stuff for some artists, right? <laughs> now, one day, I'm living in Los Angeles at the time, I'm in the crib, and I get a phone call. Uh, Gary Brown in. I'm like, this is Gary. <laughs> What's happening, Gary? He said, George Benson. I was like, yeah, okay, who is this, man? Who is this, man? <laughs> like, George, brother, this is George. And I'm like, who is this, man? And finally, I get it. I'm like, whoa, wow. Um, now, you know, think about it. I told you George was my, my idol when I was younger. Yeah. And yeah. he's like, man, them songs, man. I love them songs, brother, man. I would really, <laughs> really love to do them. Had it been almost anybody else but a George Benson or a Stevie Wonder or somebody like that, I'd have been like, yo, man, I'm not trying to give up my material. Right. But it was George Benson, man. Wow. Wow. And, you know, it was, jo- and one of my dreams was to hear George Benson scatter on a song that I had written. Ooh. You know the guitar. Wow. So, so what songs were they? I think one of them, "Holding On." 
Yes, Holding On was one. Man, uh, I, I just want to say about that song, Gary, I never heard him sort of release himself in that way on that song when he starts scatting and yes. with the guitar like he did back in the day. Yes. I mean, he just let go. I mean, I mean, it is, it's the beat, the lyric. I mean, everything is fantastic on that song. No, he killed that song, man. And that was one of the ones that became number one uh, Billboard jazz album on the Billboard charts. So that was mm. fun. I'll tell you, that whole period of time with, with George was so amazing. He was so gracious to me. I can't even begin to tell you. Mm. He came, right around that time period, he came to L.A. to get his star on the Hollywood, you know, on the Walk of Fame. Mm-hmm. He invites me to the luncheon for that. Then he invites me to his show at Universal Amphitheater that night, announces me at the show. <laughs> we take pictures with the plaque that night. Wow. Invites me to wow. his house sometime later. I'm sitting with him in, in this beautiful room he had. In, he lives in Englewood, New Jersey. And then he came down to the studio when I was doing the backgrounds for it. Actually, a very interesting story. Flavor Flav came down to the studio the day that I was doing those backgrounds, and George had no idea who Flavor was. And Flavor had five horns and had all his whole like Flavor Flav gear. Had it all, all, all. The clock and the whole thing. Oh, had the whole thing. And George is like, "Who is this brother, man? Who is this? Who is this?" You know, he's looking at this guy. Who's this clown, man? That's oh, hilarious, man. Let me tell you something, man. Flavor Flav charmed George. It was amazing. Flavor Flav ain't what you think, man. Yeah. Mm. Flavor is a, is a pretty erudite cat. He yeah. knew all of George's music. Going back to like before he sang, man, I love the White Rabbit album when he did it. And I watched George Benson just melt in his hands. <laughs> and by the night, we're all hanging out and he and Flav were like homies. Wow. That's awesome. Wow. And Flav was a drummer too. Was he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was a drummer too. That makes sense because he really knew his stuff and he knew mm-hmm. George's stuff, man. Like he mm-hmm. really knew his music. Yes. It was an interesting evening. That's that not something most people would understand. They would not know that. I was surprised. Mm-hmm. I was surprised. I mean, I, you know, I was like, wow, like he really knows his stuff. And, and, mm-hmm. and it was an interesting thing to watch these two people from completely different music idioms just blend and mesh and just like fall in love with each other that night yes. it was really it was it was you know i got a lot of you know you talk about the you know the songwriting stuff i never thought i was going to be a songwriter i always saw myself as an artist as a singer i didn't even start writing my own music till i was like in my early 20s mm, mm. which is late that's that's what I was going to ask you as far as you writing your own songs. Cause you're saying that this album with George Benson, or at least your work with him was around 96, 97, you said? Yeah, I think it was like around, yeah, like nine, like between somewhere between 96 and 98, I think. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. I remember the Rhythm or Romance album in 92, I think that came out, right? Yes, it came out in 92, but I started working on it in like 90. Okay. Okay. It took a long. There was a while that that album took a minute. Yeah, because uh, that I think it in in my personal opinion, your album still stands the test of time when it comes to that new jack swing sound in that oh, song. Man. Yeah, thank mm. you for sure. You know, it's interesting because people now, when they think back of that record, think new jack swing because there's a lot of new jack stuff on there. Yeah, I was never really considered myself or you know saw myself as a new jack swing artist, but that time. Teddy Riley created such an incredible friggin' vibe that everybody was using. Yes, yeah. So yes. Mo- if it's an up-tempo song during that period of time, mm-hmm. it's probably a New Jack vibe. You know yeah. what I mean? I mean, Teddy Riley, 
you know, he does get props, but I don't think he gets the props he really deserves because everybody was doing New Jack. I mean, even Jimmy and Terry and L.A. and Babyface were doing New Jack rooms. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. You know what and I mean? that's what, and Michael heard that, right? Yeah, of course. And remember the time and all the stuff that he did with, with, mm-hmm. with Teddy? That was all based on the New Jack vibe. And, mm-hmm. you know, interesting story, too. I remember meeting Teddy Riley. He must have been 16 years old. I was gigging at the cellar. Mm-hmm. And a friend of mine, a young lady, I can't remember her name right now, she did the duet uh, uh, Make It Last Forever with Keith Sweat, his mm-hmm. sister. And, uh, oh, Shantae Moore? No, no, no. I was before Shantae. Oh, Jackie McGee. Jackie. That's who it was. So Jackie's like, yo, Gary, you know, I want you to come out and meet this, you know, this little fr- young friend of mine. I was like, well, tell him to come in. He's like, well, he can't come in. I was like, why? He's like, he's only 16. I was like, oh, shit. So I go outside. There's a little <laughs> young Teddy Riley. Young man, what's happening? I was like, we tried to sneak him in. I don't think we can sneak him in that night. But literally, like a year and a half or two years later, I want to get him. And yeah. then just got paid. And wow. it was wow. history. You know what I mean? I should have grabbed his butt then and been like, yo, work on my record. <laughs> I didn't even have a record. That's, that's wild. That's the thing about living in New York, right? The people you mm-hmm. live in, living in New York. But I guess so what I was saying is I wasn't thinking of being a songwriter or a producer. You know what I mean? But once again, I always felt I don't want to be a one-trick pony. I don't want to just be a singer. Not mm-hmm. that there's anything wrong with that. There's just other things I feel I should learn to do. I sh- and as a, you know, I always felt if I can write my own material, even if I'm not popping at the time, I can write for somebody else. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I can have a career that would last if I can write and produce. And I say that you know to young people all the time: have your main thing, but you know, spread it out a little bit. You know, mm-hmm. if you're a, a, a director, learn a little bit about editing. You know, or sound mixing. You know, like you know, learn the craft and as much, you know, in, in the arena of the craft as you can. And had I not gotten into writing and producing, my career would have been a little short-lived. Yeah, you know I mean? but I think also that the fact that you uh, were also a performer, are a performer, uh, you bring that, the the sensitivity, the awareness that comes with that and all the work that goes into being a stage performer, that awareness goes to the situation where you're working with an artist that you're producing. Talk a little bit about that process, about, about being kind a of producer working, and what goes into that, working, taking all of the experiences that you've had together into that situation. Be like working with a singer. Well, I, you know, I'm, I, I don't think I'll be the first to say this. You know, being a, 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 a record producer, producing vocals is a little bit creative, but there's a lot of psychology. sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't because now if you're dealing with a new artist it's very different because they really want to please you Mm -hmm. you know they they want you to be happy and they'll do things over and over again and they'll want you to try this i'll try that they're young they're new they're excited but when you're working with an icon or you're working with someone who is like a whitney houston or gladys or or you know a shocker or any of those types of people you don't have that same leeway Mm-hmm. They're not going to sing it over and over again just because you want to try some new thing. They're like, you know, sometimes like, you know, could you just try Well, okay, well, what was wrong with that? They're not going to just give you six hours in the studio. They got things yeah. to do. Yes. You know what I mean? So that sometimes becomes challenging. And I've had some, there's been some times in the studio with some icons uh, where one of them, I tried to do my my little psychology, you know, thing. And, and, and the artist was like, don't try that psychology bullshit on me. Let's just get back in the studio. <laughs> I'm not going to say who it was, but you know who the person is. And, um, 
and so it, it can be challenging when you're dealing with celebrity in mm. the studio. Not always, because I mean, yeah. like James Ingram, I worked with once, and he was the like, I'm over here like a little nervous about asking him about certain things. And, you know, you, you know, could you just try or you do mind if he's like, brother, I'm here for you, brother. Mm -hmm. I mean, his brother, and he was amazing. I mean, he was just a just a wonderful, sweet human being. And and, and most of the time, it's good. But yeah. sometimes your personalities clash. Mm -hmm. You're not going to mm -hmm. get along with everybody you meet, whether they're a celebrity or not, right? I mean, mm -hmm. but isn't it something to work with one of your heroes, like a George Benson, and yeah, feel a certain indebtedness, I guess, to some extent, and then to write for him, work with him. Uh, was that in any way intimidating at first, or was yeah. it, it feel perfectly natural? Uh, what was that experience like? Well, the George Benson stuff I didn't produce. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that was just a writing thing. There was one song that actually wasn't written that mm -hmm. I wrote with Curtis Williams, who was a brother that I knew from Cool in the Gang. He's the keyboard player that we wrote called "Summer Love." So we did oh, write okay. for mm -hmm. George. It can definitely be intimidating. But like I said, with most of the records that I've had covered by artists, normally they were songs like, oh, look, I'll, I'll give you a perfect example. I had a song on the icon of, I, Love is the Icon, I think is the name of the album. It's a Barry White album that did really well. It had practice what you preach on it. And, oh, uh, yeah. Big record. And I will never forget someone going, yo, man, congratulations on that Barry White album. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what are you talking about? He said, well, you got that song on there. And I was like, what? Really? What song? <laughs> and it was a song I had written with Barry Eastman, who, if you look him up, he's produced and written for everybody. I mean, everybody. Yeah. Uh, that we had written like maybe three years before that. And all of a sudden it's on that album because I guess someone from the publishing company presented it and he took it. I didn't even know it was being recorded. So a lot of times there's songs that I had no artist in mind or I had a different artist in mind. Like, for instance, I wrote a song called uh, Falling for that, uh, that NSYNC ended up doing. We wrote for 98 Degrees. Oh, wow. You know what I mean? Now, it usually don't work like that. Usually you don't get the one you want and you go down a little bit. This was like, it went up. You know, <laughs> yeah, 98 it's major. Degrees was big, but NSYNC was huge at the time. Yeah. They were mm -hmm. like the biggest group in the world at the time. And... So that song was written for that idiom, but I didn't know Justin Timberlake was going to ultimately sing it. You know what I mean? So a lot of times, for me at least, it wasn't necessarily writing or assignment like that. A couple of times it was. Gladys Knight, when I wrote something for her, it was that. She's, by the way, an absolute class act, sweetest human being in the world, just incredible. But often it was like songs that I had written and, you know, you hand it in the publishing company and then they went out and they, they, they got it covered. But when I was producing, often I was writing for the artist in particular. And, yeah, it, it can sometimes be intimidating and sometimes it can just be maddening or difficult yeah. because some artists are difficult, you know. And if you they walk into the studio with you and they don't necessarily know you, and here now you have to, you know, I am producing, so I, we're going to work together here. But, you know, we do have a little bit of a vision. We're trying to, you know, and vocal production, vocals can be a very, very intense, intense thing to do. Especially back then, we didn't have, you know, we didn't have pitch correction and all of that type of stuff. It's like you had to get that performance. You couldn't fix it 
in post like you can now. You had to get that performance. And sometimes artists would think, I'm good, but you're like, yeah, but you're really not now. You know what I mean? And it can, it can get a little funky sometimes. Most of the time <laughs> it's great, but it can get a little difficult. Not like yelling, that kind of thing. I never had anything like that. But where they tell on you sometimes, you know, they tell on you. It's like you get a call from the A&R guy. It's like, yo, uh, such and such a manager told me you were giving her a hard time in the studio. I was like, wait, 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 wait. what are you talking about? <laughs> it's like you got called to the principal's that. office. Yeah, man, you get told on. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's happened to me on a few occasions. But most of the time, it's, look, by the end of the, 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 the project or the song, everybody's usually happy and all the, you know, if there was any issues, it's all swept under the rug and you keep it moving, you know, for the most part, everyone's good. What was it like uh, working with Gladys when you did the song, If I Were Your Woman too? Because everyone knows if I were your woman and you were my man and I would do yeah. this, but right. now you're taking that song and you're kind of flipping it in a yeah. different way. What, writing from the perspective of a woman in this situation, what was that experience like? Well, you know, and that's interesting because that's one of the songs that I did write with the artist in mind. What I did lyrically was I flipped it in a way where you're almost saying you wouldn't be doing those things if I was actually your woman. In other words, you're doing those things because I'm not your woman yet. So basically, would you continue to do those things if I was really your woman? Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting. I've always felt comfortable with writing from a woman's perspective. As much as I can, because I think I feel like certain things are universal. You know what I mean? Not all things, but certain things. Um, of course, that was a situation where I really wanted to get that. You know, there's certain artists that you just want to have on your discography. And, you know, you think Gladys Knight, that that's someone I would just love. She was always one of my favorite, favorite singers of all time. Most of my idols, you can tell a man. But Gladys Knight, I always thought had an amazing voice because, you know, one thing about Gladys, you notice she don't need to riff, man. She doesn't riff a lot. Yeah. It's just the sound and the tenor and timbre of her voice is so pure and real and honest and believable mm -hmm. that she don't need to do all that riffing. You believe everything she says. Yes. And I really wanted to be able to have worked with her and the guy who a and r'd that record actually was the brother from american idol what was the original brother from american idol simon you know, cowell no the brother the brother. oh you know, randy what's jackson up, dog randy <laughs> what's up dog <laughs> you know he used to always say that right yep uh and he he loved the song when he first heard it but then i heard rumors that they weren't going to use the song and i was really distraught about that but then i guess they ended up using it and then it ended up being the single not because the label chose it, but because Tom Joyner just started playing. Wow. And he has so many, you know, he's affiliated throughout the country. So it just became the single based because Tom Joyner decided it was going to be, basically. That's wild. I'm just wow. floored that there are so many songs that you wrote that were playing either on the radio or even in my friends and my CD players back in high school that I had no idea, especially listening to that NSYNC celebrity album. But I had no idea that you were the one who wrote that. You know, it was interesting. I was doing a lot of like mature artists at the time and I really wanted to write something for a younger group. 
Yeah. Like that was one thing I felt like, damn, it'd just be nice to like be able to write something for like this generation. Like I said, we had written it for 98 Degrees. I guess they passed on it. And then one of the guys who I was working with uh, had a relationship with, I think, one of the members of the group. It wasn't Justin, though. And we went down to Orlando. Justin came, well, Justin came in and he did the demo for the whole song. And he, he was a talent. And he was young. He was a talented little cat. He knocked it out and did a really, because I did the original demo. And then he's, I think he did it as a duet with one of the other guys. Um, Chaz, I think was it. I don't remember all the, the, the members of the group. I think it was something Chaz or something like that. And this was the last record they were doing as a group. And they ended up using the song. They did a movie. It was called uh, On the Line. And it was in that film. But I uh, I was impressed with, with Justin at that time. This is before he had started his solo career or anything. Yeah. And it was kind of a nice kick because they came to Los Angeles to perform at, at the Rose Bowl. And my kids were young at the time and they knew who they were, obviously. And we went down and sat, you know, by the stage for sound check and stuff. And then, you know, the kids got to meet them backstage. And they were, you know, obviously very excited because this was in sync. I mean, in sync, I don't know if you remember this time period, they were huge. Yes. They were massive. Oh, they were everywhere. I mean, I think they were selling like 20, 22 million records every time they were out. You know, I'm just like, oh, my God. I mean, they were just everywhere. But, it, you know, so I enjoyed just the fact to be able to write something for younger artists at that point. I just wanted to have that experience. Yeah. Now, once awesome. I didn't I didn't produce that. I, I, I wrote it, but I didn't I didn't produce it. But yeah, man, like he was that, that was an interesting. Uh, there was a lot of stuff out there. You're right. During that time. I forget about a lot of it, to be honest, because <laughs> you. you do it and then you have to move on. And then on. you move on. Yeah. You know, you, you, you know, you, you can't rest on your laurels and you, you know, you're always thinking about the next gig. You know what I mean? And like, you know, other artists you'd like to work with or other artists that are looking and, you know, those records, they come out and they get out into the world. And what's, that's, what's interesting about YouTube though, man, what's nice about YouTube is as a writer, you can go to the song and hear people's reaction to the song, yeah. which you could never do as a songwriter before, because if you're a singer, you can. You go out and you sing your song for the audience and you get that immediate. But as the songwriter, you're not around. You don't you know, get to enjoy any of those accolades. But you can now go to YouTube and you can see like, wow, I love this song. Or this was our wedding song. Or this song always made me feel this. Or, and it's kind of nice to be able to read those, those little notes that people put up. There. Feedback. Yeah. yeah, most definitely. And and that I think that's also something as far as keeping folks' music within the realm of access, because to go back to Rhythm or Romance as an example, I can't go stream that. And so I'm lucky enough that dad had the CD, and so I have the MP3s and I'm able to do that. But but because of YouTube, folks yeah. can go on and listen to the album. And, and you still have folks commenting now being like, this is my jam still in 2020. I, I, and and, and, and it's, it's incredible. Well, what bugs me out about some of the songs on the Rhythm of Romance is, like, I see remixes of them. Not remixes wow. that we did. Like, there's just, like, young remixers are out there, like, remixing those songs. I'm like, wow, y'all are still remixing these joints? Because people <laughs> were serious, you know, because some of that stuff was on vinyl. Serious vinyl heads, they'll go and, you know, dig in the crates. See, I'm one of them cats in the crate now. That's the crazy thing. Like, <laughs> I'm one of them records in the crate. Like, I'm like, you got to go digging now. You're like, yeah. oh, let me check this out. Like, I'm one of those people now. Which mm -hmm. is weird to think of, you know, but, you know, they find it 
And, you know, what's interesting is they say some pretty cool stuff about it. You know, this was, you know, or someone will say, oh, you know, my mom used to love this record. And even with some of the other artists that I've written for, like, you know, I love when I hear people say things like, oh, this was this was our wedding song or, you know, this song got me through a difficult time. You know, I, I hate to sound corny, but that's what music does. Right. I mean, that's mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's what you want to hear when you write a lyric or you write a song and find out that it touched someone or it helped them in some way or it changed their life in some small way. Or, that's why you do it, right? I mean, that's why Absolutely. you do it. You want to reach people, right? You know that, Steve Jr. I mean, yep. you know how that feels when, you know, you write a lyric that, you know, someone tells you, like, you know, make them look at something in a different way or open their mind up and, you know, that's that's got to be the best compliment that you get. Absolutely. You're 100% right about that. Yeah. You know, so it's all worth it, man. You know, it's it's all because it's not all good all the time. It wasn't always mm. good. You know, I went through some, you know, I went through some difficult years in the industry. You know, when the music industry, <clears throat> you got to remember, the music industry after file sharing started with the whole Napster thing, the music industry in many ways, at least the, the industry that I knew, imploded. And, right. you know, so here I did, I had to reinvent myself from being a singer to being a songwriter and producer. Now I had to reinvent myself again because the producing and the songwriting gigs were, were drying up because a lot of the artists no longer had record deals. And the labels, you know, weren't pulling in the same kind of money and didn't have the same kind of budgets to do records that they did. A lot of these artists might have kept doing their own records, but they were doing them very, very streamlined and didn't have real budgets like, you know, we were getting. And so I had to reinvent again uh, and start getting into like more composing type stuff. So, you know, it's it's never just this, man, you know, yeah. where it's just a steady climb up or or even a steady line across. It's always it's uh, for me, at least it's peaks and valleys, man. Absolutely. I definitely yeah. understand and, and, and empathize and, and just feel you on that and sympathize. It's, yeah, it's yeah, a lot man. of peaks and valleys to it all. Oh, absolutely. You know, I would look back and say, you know, a good portion of it was was positive and great and all that. But there was some, you know, there was some difficult years, man, um, in those kind of transitional periods. You know, the transition from losing the record deal and then going and, you know, becoming a, a songwriter and a producer was a transition. And then going from songwriter to producer to more kind of composer was a transition. And those little pocket transition periods are not easy periods for, for an artist, uh, especially yeah. if you plan on continuing to try to stay in the industry in one way or the other. You know, yeah. a lot of cats that I would work with back in those times didn't even stay in the music industry. You know, they went to uh, teaching or all kinds of other stuff because that period was, was, there was a lot of turnover when kind of the file sharing thing started to take effect and the record labels, people were basically getting them, you know, the idea of, of you know, people your age don't think of music as something you pay for mm -hmm. anymore. You know, that is a new concept for those of us who've been around. So you have to find a whole new ways of creating revenue streams as a musician or an artist, right? I mean, it's totally different now. So what has helped sustain you through those peaks and valleys, as you say, and, you know, what kind of vistas are opening up for you at this point? You know, how are you moving forward uh, with your music? Well, 
what got me, I think, through the peaks and valleys was two things. One is just always believing that I belonged in the industry in one capacity or another, always feeling I had something to offer. And the other one was just really not wanting to do anything else. <laughs> the yeah. idea of a nine to five, man, like was just, that's enough to drive me to do whatever I've got to do. You know what I mean? Because I am not a nine to five cat. Um, I could maybe teach. Teaching I can see doing. And I did some. Um, teaching's different though. Because teaching you get to, you know, and you know this, Steve, you get to to work with with someone and see growth and creativity. That's different. But like a job job, you know, so it's the fear of that. And just, you know, it's it's will. Really, it's just desire and will to be like, no, okay, I can't do this exactly like this anymore, or I can't do that, which is going to happen as you get older anyway. You know what I mean? Even if the industry's yeah. not changing, you're changing. Yeah. So having spent some time writing and, and not only writing lyrics and melodies, but learning how to you know write music, writing musically, allowed me to become better and better uh, at actual composing, which, you know, for either like TV commercials or documentaries or, you know, jingles sometimes it was it was like songs for, for, for shows. And sometimes it's just, you know, shorter or longer form content. It kind of started from starting to compose some TV commercial stuff. So in the early 2000s, I started doing more kind of jingles, mm -hmm. um, which is good money when you can when you can get the gigs. Yeah. Um, but that's kind of real short form composing, right? Uh, and then just slowly, slowly, you're just starting to do longer form stuff, you know, some documentary stuff. And it's a whole different thing. Composing music to picture is a whole different thing from writing a song. It's a whole different place that you have to come from. You're serving now someone else's vision, not your own, right? So you're supporting a director or producer's vision now, okay? You're not, you know, you're not the center of the creative process anymore. Now you're a supporting player in the creative process. So you have to learn to write to assignment. You can't just write, you know, you can start from something that you feel that's innate, but then you might, you know, now you've got to do some giving and taking. Now you've got to do some, some you know, deal with critique and um, another person's point of view. Uh, which is why I think a lot of musicians have a hard time with composing because you're not the final word anymore. And you have to do it on time. you got to do it within budget. And you have to give, ultimately, you have to give that director or that producer what they're looking for, not just the way you see it. So that's that becomes challenging, too, and not necessarily easy. And, you know, um, but I enjoy it as much as songwriting, you know. Collaborative process? Um, unfortunately, with the kind of stuff I've been doing, not as collaborative as I'd like it to be because I haven't done like any huge film yet where like I would like bring the music to an orchestra. But even that's only somewhat collaborative because they're just playing the arrangements that you've written. Mm -hmm. So... It's very rare that you see two people working together on a score. It happens sometimes. But, you know, because of technology, a lot of it is done just solo in front of your computer. 
and you're playing the oboes and the cellos and the pizzicato violin parts and all of that yourself. So it's not as collaborative. It's collaborative in that you're working with, with a producer, a director, an engineer and all that. It's collaborative in that way. But it's not collaborative where I'm working necessarily with other musicians that much. Now, I might bring in a guitar player or a bass player here and there um, to do certain things or a horn player. But it's not like when I used to make records and you had, you know, the background vocalist came in. The next day, the guitar player was coming in. The bass player was coming in. And it wasn't even always collaborative with record making either, but a good amount of the time because of the nature of the artists I was working on, it was. Mm-hmm. But um, it's not as collaborative the scoring as I'd like it to be. You are working with other creatives. Mm-hmm. So I guess in that respect, it is collaborative. And so are you thinking about other ways that you could do things uh, maybe differently? focus on your own specific interests as you move forward uh, in music? Well, yeah, I, um, there's an interesting project I'm involved in, which is actually, I'm in a supporting role, but it's called Detour. And it is a, it was started by a guy named Ron Stodgill, who is a travel writer, but not in the, in the way where he tells you the cool place to go to or the good food. A travel writer where most of his writing is more from a black storytellers narrative and we're doing this project where he'll be creating you know it's kind of like a digital not just magazine or digital portal but also there'll be podcasts everything black travel so everything with a black through a black lens having to do with travel but that means revisionist history about certain areas of the world that we have to rewrite the history or tell the truth about it it means talking about the black experience when traveling in certain places maybe a little bit of the green book aspect involved but there's going to be a video content short short form and longer form documentaries that we'll do podcasts that we'll do i'll be actually scoring a lot of that but also i'll be producing some of the podcasts so ultimately i get to finally bring all of my creative tools that i guess i've worked on through the years from being an actor, producer, songwriter, artist, and be kind of be able to bring them in under one roof, which is what is exciting about it. So I'll be working with actors or other performers with podcasts and producing them. I'll be able to score the short form and long form documentaries or any kind of live action that we do. I'll probably be doing some VO work. So as I'll be using some of the acting chops and I'll basically I'm creative uh, director. Uh, a kind of director of creative content for, for this enterprise. So it's kind of like a culmination of kind of like an opportunity to do a little bit of all of the things that I've enjoyed doing through my, through the years under one roof, which I'm really excited about. That's, That's incredible. Yeah. Gary, I can't tell you how delighted we are and honored that you took the time to be part of this style free podcast as our first guest i'm honored to have been your first guest yes yes you know thank you man you know i knew it'd be fun man 